One Sunday morning at about 11 o'clock in the Hestertown area right outside of Lumberton, a man named Charles Maynor was out driving. He realized that he needed to make a U-turn, and so he pulled into a cemetery's driveway to turn around. And when he did, he saw a woman's naked body laying face down. Three months later, and only a mile away, someone was out walking in the woods behind a business when they stopped dead in their tracks. Another partially naked and badly beaten body had been found. And in recent years, the pattern has repeated itself, with women in the same area being found dead. This is the story of Michelle Driggers and Lisa Harden. I already have pure goosebumps all over my body just thinking about these two stories. Right, like we need to start covering some different kind of crimes like, I don't know, writing bad checks or something. Facts. Tax evasion all up in this mug. Today's story starts off as a series of stories that we will tell you over the next couple of weeks. We're going to be covering the cases of Michelle and Lisa during this episode, and then talking about the women found dead in East Lumberton in 2017 in a special two-part episode that will air after Easter. Michelle Ann Driggers was a 23-year-old mother of three children, and she actually named her first son after her dad and then her first daughter after her mama, so I thought that was kind of sweet. And for all my Lumberton folks, she used to work at Huddle House, Cracker Barrel, and Central Park, which I think we all miss Central Park's fries, or at least I do. But Chelsea, I know you don't know nothing about that Central Park life. I totally know about Central Park life, and I miss those fries also. Lies. <laughs> Please and I come to Lumberton all the time. Um, mm. So we don't know much about you know, Lisa's life at this time, but we do think she had some financial problems because... She owed some money to a storage facility at the time that was storing some of her things and she didn't pay. And so the facility was actually selling the items in there to recover their money. And this was advertised in the newspaper. And from what we were able to find out, she had gotten a ride to Lumberton um, on a Friday from Maxton where she lived. And we're not sure what she did on that Friday or on that Saturday, but her friends last report seeing her on Sunday morning at 3 o'clock in the morning near Chippewa Street in East Lumberton. And unfortunately, the next time she's seen is at 11 o'clock, so eight hours later, that Sunday morning, March 30th. And that's actually tomorrow if you're listening to this on Monday the 29th. Like we said earlier, a man named Charles Maynard was driving down Hestertown Road in Lumberton, and he needed to make a U-turn, and so he pulled into the driveway of this small and overgrown cemetery. And Brittany, I couldn't find the name of the cemetery. Do you know? Okay, so shout out to my daddy, because he is our unofficial detective here at the Red Justice Project, and I couldn't find the name either in any of the newspaper archives, and so I had him actually drive down that road, and the only cemetery there is called Floyd's Temple Number 1 Church Cemetery. And he even took a picture for me of the driveway and everything. And it's a grassy driveway with this little open gate on the edges. And then there's like a ditch or a canal type of thing kind of below it and in front of it. Wow, shout out to your daddy, Mr. Ron, for doing that for us. Facts. And so Charles pulls in, about to bust that Yui that we all, you know, have to do from time to time. And then that's when he sees her. And this is 2003, so I'm not sure if he had a cell phone or if he went to his house. But we do know that he called authorities and they came on the scene. And when they did, they discovered the body of Michelle Andriggers. 
She was lying face down in a mud puddle in the driveway. She was completely naked and her clothes were scattered around her. Her body had been badly bruised and it was clear that she had been beaten. And Captain Randall Patterson of the Lumberton Police Department said that it looked like uh, she had been struck in the head with a blunt object. And even though it's clear she had been beaten, they don't actually know how she died for sure. So they had to send her body to the medical examiner's office in Chapel Hill so they could do a full autopsy. And also, let me just say that you have to be a sick somebody to kill somebody in a cemetery, you know, in the same place where people go to mourn their dead relatives. Right, and bold. Like, you have to be bold to kill someone and then just leave their body in a driveway that's visible like when people drive by. Right, it's almost like the person that didn't know that he wouldn't get caught or that people wouldn't care. And so, Michelle's family is obviously devastated by her murder. And I learned, too, that she had to have a closed casket because of how badly she had been beaten, but that they uh, did open it to allow the family to see her again. But as the hours and days and weeks go on, her daddy started to get really frustrated with how slowly the process is going. And Chelsea, can you just read what he said? He says, I just think this case isn't coming along fast enough. Whatever she's done, she didn't deserve to be beaten to death. I just want to try to speed up the process and find the person who brutally killed my daughter. And so he offers a $500 reward for information leading to the arrest of her killer. But still, there was nothing. And then a few months later, the autopsy reports come back, and they're so much worse than anyone could imagine. Michelle had been strangled, beaten, stabbed several times, and sexually assaulted with a sharp object, which was a contributing factor to her death. You know, which is just even more sickening. Just just imagining what she went through is just sickening to it me. It really is. And, you know, it's really important for us to share this next piece of information because in addition to the area she was found, there's also another potential link between her and a few of the other victims we're going to discuss in later episodes. So, in September of 2002, Michelle was charged with soliciting a crime against nature. And this charge ends up getting dismissed, but this charge is often considered similar to the charge of soliciting for prostitution. And I learned that soliciting for prostitution is when a woman offers to engage in sexual intercourse for money, but soliciting for crimes against nature is for offering to engage in other sexual acts for payment. But either way, the charge was dropped. And so what we see in the media after Michelle is murdered is her just being referred to as a woman who was killed, but then progressively throughout time, the articles evolve. And they begin kind of referring to her as a prostitute, even though she had just had that one charge that she was not even convicted of. And then there is this quote too from her daddy again, and he says, There were rumors that she was a prostitute, but I don't know for a fact that she was. I don't know if that had anything to do with her death. And he also said that she was a good daughter and had problems just like anybody else. Yeah, and I think that's the most important thing. She had problems just like anyone else, and you never know what your life will turn out to be. And I just want to say, you know, even if she was a sex worker, like, it wouldn't have mattered because it wouldn't justify being killed at all. Like, there's no, you know, occupation that justifies that kind of death. Yeah, and it also just makes me mad, too, when people justify these kind of gruesome crimes and they say, oh, well, this person did X, Y, Z. I remember I was talking to somebody one time and they said that um, the women who Bill Cosby raped deserved it because they knew he was married. And it just makes me, I don't know, really mad to hear people say things like that because it's just 
makes you really question like people you know and who you're talking to but you know i also just want to reiterate the point that you know we're all just a few bad decisions or bad circumstances away from poverty or from drug abuse or from any other kind of social problem so i hate when people get really high and mighty about issues like this and say oh it can never be me you know no it absolutely could be you it could be me And then I also learned that Michelle's dad actually ended up having to take her kids after she was murdered and he raised them, but that unfortunately he died two years later, so he never got to get justice for his baby. So sad, and just rest in peace to both of them, especially, you know, as we pray for justice for Michelle. Yes, we're praying for justice for Michelle for sure. And so, um, you know, just a few months later, I want to you know talk about another similar case. And so now we're going to switch gears to talking about Lisa Harden. So Lisa was just 36 years old, and I'm told that she was an excellent cook and an excellent housekeeper. And so she sounds just like so many Lumbee women who I know and love. And she was described as being a beautiful person and well-loved by her family and friends. And so just three and a half months after Michelle's murder tragedy knocks on Lisa's door. So on Monday, July 14th at about four o'clock, someone is out walking behind this business called Titan Flow Control in Lumberton, North Carolina on Chippewa Street. Remember, that's the exact same place where Michelle was last seen alive. And just 15 feet away from the business, they see a body laying in the woods, just a few feet from some inactive train tracks. And when authorities show up, they identify her as Lisa Ann Harden. And just like Michelle, unfortunately, Lisa's body was in a terrible state. She was badly bruised, but did not appear to have been shot or stabbed. She had been beaten, and she was partially clothed. And immediately the case becomes associated with Michelle's, because not only were their bodies found in similar states of abuse and degradation, but Lisa was found less than a mile away from where Michelle's body was found. And I also read in the paper that a woman named Anita Britt said she walked in those woods every morning and that she didn't see Lisa's body there that morning when she walked by. So that's really odd. Yeah, I thought that was super strange, too. And I hope that that lady never walked in those woods or in that area again by herself. Right. You would not have caught me there ever walking in those woods. I'd have maybe walked around my house a couple times and went back inside if I was trying to just get exercise. And when her autopsy results come back, they were just so traumatic. She had severe blunt force trauma to her head, cuts on her head and stomach, and she was also sexually assaulted. And so even though before the police said that she hadn't been stabbed, it does appear that maybe she was or that uh, maybe she was cut maybe by the sticks or something in the woods that she was in. But the autopsy actually determined that she had been killed by manual strangulation. So someone was... Someone strangled her to death with their bare hands. And that's another element of sadism, I think, in these attacks. You know, these are deeply personal and hate-filled attacks. Like, you have to look at someone in the eyes to strangle them. I mean, it's just another layer of trauma that these victims had to endure. And around this same time, the police say we've had some leads and suspects, but nothing strong or concrete that the investigators can work with. Do we know if there was any DNA or fingerprints or any kind of weapon left behind? So I don't know anything about that, and I tried to find out, but I haven't been able to. But 
with how brutal and physical these crimes were, I would think that there would have had to been some kind of DNA or evidence left behind. And I also found out that Lisa's funeral was actually held at my church. So the church that I grew up going to my whole life and my preacher who has since passed away actually preached her funeral as well as my former youth pastor and another family friend. And then also I um, received a picture of her tombstone and I just want to read the quote that's on there and it says, not lost to love, not lost to memory, but gone to our heavenly home above. Oh, it's so sweet. And so just like Michelle, Lisa has been charged in the past as well. So on April 26th of that year, a month after Michelle's death and two months before her own, she was convicted of solicitation to commit a felony, but was given a suspended sentence and probation. And so I'm not sure if this is a crime associated with sex work or not, but the papers do the same thing they did with Michelle. They begin referring to her as a prostitute in every single article written about her. And then I also read that she had been charged with soliciting prostitution in the past, but that she was not known as a regular sex worker in the area. So we begin to see kind of this progression of demonizing these women in the media or kind of positioning them as somehow deserving of what happened to them, which just disgusts me. Facts. And also, it's really important for our story for y'all to kind of understand the area where these murders happen. So they happen in East Lumberton, around the Chippewa Street, Hestertown Road area. And these areas are heavily associated with sex work. Even in recent times as well, including the murders of three women there in 2017 and of two other women who went missing from there in the same year. And I also think it's important to review a few of the news articles about sex workers from around this same time when Michelle and Lisa were found murdered. So I found several very interesting things. So in November of that year, the title of the article was Prostitute Slaying Stump Lawmen, which like WTF, why would you name the article that? And then the Lumberton Police Department Chief Robert Grice said in one article, this should send a very strong signal to them that what they are doing by getting up with strangers and people they don't know is very dangerous. Which again, WTF, like why are you blaming the victims? But let's just keep going. So in May of 2005, two years after the murders, there was an article in the paper about a sting operation where cops were trying to arrest sex workers and Johns. But this is what Bernice Wilkins, who was an officer at the time and who's now the sheriff of Robinson County, said about sex workers and the men they arrested. He said, if that had been a real prostitute, she would have been with 10 different men. These girls don't go home and take a bath after each customer. Now, that's kind of truly disgusting. Um, like, I can't believe yeah. that's our current sheriff. And, we, yeah. and that's Sorry. all I'll say Let's about that. Yeah. And we also found so many more, too. One blamed sex workers for the rise of gonorrhea and chlamydia. The health director even said, and I quote, You can get a prostitute for a pack of cigarettes or a Happy Meal. Ugh, it's just disgusting the way we're describing these people. Another article has a quote where he says that women will do anything for $30, depending on what woman you pick up. Another article criticized the program the health department had created where they were going to hire a sex worker to work with other sex workers and help get them off the streets. A man wrote an op-ed in the local paper and said, that's like saying that pedophiles can be the only ones able to counsel victimized children. 
Another was mad about the program and said that sex workers can't do that job because they are not educated. Which, you know, both of those are just super crazy and weird to me and very elitist. So after I graduated from Duke, there was a scandal because there was a student who um, who was there at the time who actually was a sex worker and she did that work to pay for her tuition. So if a Duke student can be a sex worker... Um, it's a lot more common than people realize. And also, it, being a sex worker is not synonymous with being uneducated. I'm sure there are many sex workers who are very educated. And, you know, we say all of this to say that the tone in Robinson County was definitively set. So, sure, the murders of Michelle and Lisa were bad. But how bad could they be, according to the police and to the paper? They are being portrayed in the paper and by the police as being dirty, cheap, and engaging in dangerous acts. And the county is literally the perfect environment for violence like this to continue and increase. And it does. I mean, another woman who was rumored to be a sex worker was beaten to death with an aluminum baseball bat by two men in Fairmont, which is the town next to Lumberton. And they left her at the end of a dirt road and she laid there dead for two days before she was found. Her name was Georgette Brown. And, you know, thankfully her killers were arrested for this terrible crime. But again, the stage was set for the violence. I was also thinking that around this same time I had a PlayStation and the game that I would play a lot was Grand Theft Auto um, Vice City. I don't know if you ever played that, Chelsea. And one very big component of that game was like picking up sex workers in your car on the game. But you could also beat them to death to get their money. And just like as a 13 year old, it was just seen as this fun part of the game. Um, And and the game kind of like gears you towards doing it. But looking back, it's just just sick and you know also disgusting and just i think really fitting that it's happening at this exact same time in history right it's like it's contributing to this culture where we're it's okay to you know blame it on the victims when really like we should be blaming it on the people who are perpetrating the crimes i mean they are the ones murdering and beating people right and creating an, an, an environment where like sex workers are seen as worthy of being killed or like that's their that's it's okay if it happens it's normal Right, because, I mean, you know, they should have chosen a different career or different circumstances in life when we don't really know what led them to do that work anyway. Yeah. We also learned that the SBI began assisting the LPD, which is the Lumberton Police Department, with the cases of Lisa and Michelle, and that sex work in the area actually declined afterwards, and police surveillance increased. And another thing that really bothered me in doing this research is that when a woman was arrested for a prostitution charge at the time, they would list the woman's address in the newspaper. And I mean, like, what is the rationale of doing that, especially given what happened to Michelle and Lisa? Why would you put the women in jeopardy by saying where they live? Right. If you know that there are people attacking sex workers, like, why would you make them an even bigger target? Yeah. And then we learned, too, that in November of 2002, the current sheriff of the county, Bernice Wilkins, was patrolling Chippewa Street where Lisa was found murdered. He saw a man driving a van with a known sex worker in the passenger seat. He tried to pull the van over, but the sex worker got out and ran, but the man was actually apprehended. His name was Ronald Wayne Britt, and he was actually wanted for murder of a man in Virginia in September of that year. When he got pulled over, he gave an ID of a man named Robert Klauser, and that was the name of the man who he had killed. 
Yeah, and this man, Robert, actually lived on uh, Watts Road, where I used to live. And, and also the same day, actually, when I was researching these cases, the same exact day that Ronald was caught, um, there were bones that were found in, or the like, like bones from a body that were found in Red, in the Red Springs area. So it's just crazy that I was researching one murder to find out about another one. Also, we just wanted to give y'all some stats about murders of sex workers before we close this episode. Sex workers are 60 to 100 times more likely to be murdered than non-sex workers. Lots of serial killers target sex workers, including Jack the Ripper, the Long Island serial killer, and Robert Picton in Canada. And between 1970 and 2009, 22% of victims of serial killers were sex workers, and now that number is 43%. So the problem is getting worse. And actually, Gary Ridgway, who's known as the Green River Killer, was convicted of killing over 50 women, most of who were sex workers, said this, and Brittany, I'm going to have you read the quote. He said, I picked prostitutes as my victims because I hate most prostitutes. I also picked prostitutes because they were easy to pick up without being noticed. I knew that they would not be reported missing. I picked prostitutes because I thought I could kill as many of them as I wanted without getting caught. Creepy AF, right? Yes. Wow, that's just so disgusting. And also, just a quick note. So, if sex workers are 60 to 100 times more likely to be murdered, and if serial killers target sex workers, and if Native women are also more likely to be murdered... And if women in poverty are also more likely to be murdered, then where does that leave the, you know, lumpy sex workers in Robinson County? Extremely, extremely vulnerable to unnecessary violence. And if you have any information about the murder of Lisa or Michelle, giving that information over to authorities could literally save a life. It could save your daughter's, cousin's, or mother's life. We're not asking you to contact the Robinson County Sheriff's Department, but we are asking you to contact the SBI or the FBI or Crime Stoppers. Also, we will be taking next Monday off for Easter, but we'll be back on April 12th with a new episode. Thank you for listening to the Red Justice Project.